0: If you've heard my conversations with Michael Schwimmer or Ben Ryder, you probably know I'm a big sports fan, and I love talking about the intersection of sports and investing. Ben introduced me to today's guest, and I leapt at the chance to hear his story. My guest on today's show is Paul Rabel, the co-founder and CEO of the Premier Lacrosse League, or PLL, a new tour-based league of the top professional lacrosse players in the world that will debut on June 1st. Paul was the number one player in the draft for Major League Lacrosse in 2008 after winning a national championship at Johns Hopkins. He's a seven-time champion, three-time MVP, and if you ask my son Eric, the best player in the world. Alongside his on-the-field accomplishments, Paul is a passionate entrepreneur who was the first lacrosse player to earn a million dollars a year in endorsements. Our conversation covers Paul's early interest in lacrosse, developing a social media following, the importance of sponsorship revenue for athletes, and the leverage athletes have over teams. We then turn to the formation of the PLL, including Paul's attempt to purchase the MLL with a search fund, his shift in business model from private equity to venture capital, the tour-based model, operations, distribution, and the on-field product. We close by discussing Suiting Up, Paul's podcast, where he interviews top professional athletes and coaches, and the Paul Rabel Foundation, which brings lacrosse to schools for children with learning differences. Paul is as savvy off the field as he is skilled on it, and as the PLL takes off, as I suspect it will, this conversation may well mark an important moment in time for this fascinating startup league. Tune in to NBC to watch the first games from Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts on the first weekend in June. Please enjoy my conversation with Paul Rabel. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun, and you probably know I'm a bit of a sports buff. So why don't we just start with your background and really your path to lacrosse? Yeah, so I grew up playing sports as a young kid, My dad tells
1: me to this day that he would get my older brother, Mike, and my younger sister and I into whatever sport we had interest in playing so long as there was a path to getting us in there. And we played a majority of our ball in rec lacrosse. So I played soccer, basketball. My brother played baseball. I swam. I ran track, cross country. And there was a point as I was improving as a young athlete, I was 12, and I kind of shudder saying that because there's so much pressure on sports specialization for young kids today. But I was growing fast and I was talented in basketball and soccer. And both of my coaches wanted me to play in basketball, AAU and soccer, club soccer. And I wanted to keep playing both. So I told them no. And then my neighbor at the time was playing lacrosse and he came to me with his backup equipment and said, hey, why don't you put this on and fill that open void you have in the spring? I didn't know what the hell lacrosse was, despite being from Maryland. A lot of people think Maryland and New York are the two hotbeds. It's actually Baltimore and Long Island. So (laughs) I was about an hour and a half from Baltimore. And at the time, in the early 90s, it wasn't much lacrosse. So I struggled for the first couple of years. And then over time, really felt like I was excelling playing that game more than I was in basketball and soccer. So when I got into high school, I began really focusing on the prospect of skill acquisition so I could play in college. And what did that look like when you were in high school? A lot of time against the wall, a lot of time creatively trying to improve. This was early 2000s, pre-YouTube, around the turn of the internet age. And so we were getting a lot of our inspiration as young athletes through imagination. And on occasion, well, actually once a year, there would be lacrosse on television. And that was at the final four and it'd be on ESPN2. So, I would have those VHS tapes and rewatch those games to understand where and how the game was played at the highest level. And that would try to replicate it in my backyard. I think now there's more time allocated to scrimmages and practices, and there's seemingly year round lacrosse. I was watching a piece from Wayne Gretzky who references this with his dad, too, that his time. Out in the backyard on the ice by himself, where he was just working on his skill and doing so creatively, was the most valuable and probably seminal time in his career. And he worries that fewer kids are doing that. So you go through college and you start playing pro lacrosse. Yeah. First of all, I I didn't really even think about pro lacrosse too much when I was in college. At the time, like, even when I was. 14 and then through high school, I viewed the gold standard in lacrosse as playing at the national championship game in college. And so all of my focus and attention, even through my senior year, was let's win a championship and how do we get there? It's different in college basketball and college football and even baseball and hockey and big four sports. And it's okay that a kid is, like Zion Williamson we were just talking about, is competing for an ACC championship and an NCAA championship his freshman year, but he also knows he's going to go to the NBA. Like, that's okay, right? That's being <laughs> realistic and practical. That was completely non-existent for me. And then when I did finish my senior year, we lost the national championship game to Syracuse. I was bummed, and the MLL draft took place. I was drafted first. There was a big scheduling overlap at the time, which is something that we've solved for, and we'll talk about that with the PLL. But the MLL season had started in April, so they were already six games in. So you feel distant from the team and the league coming into a season where they're almost halfway through. But Ted, I had a job in real estate as an analyst for an investment sales team. That's what my predecessors had done that played in both pro lacrosse, but had started their careers in Wall Street or real estate or legal entertainment, et cetera. So, I did all my internships leading into that graduation year. And then I took a job in DC. And my bosses knew who I was. And they were okay with me taking off Thursday nights after work and flying up to Boston to practice on Friday and playing in the game that weekend and coming back on Monday, nicked up. But that got old pretty quickly, combined with that being 2008. So, the pit of the economy. especially I was in investment sales. So we were trading buildings and no buildings were being traded. So I was just thumbing around on Argus, trying to figure out how to model and read through leases. And then got to a place though at the time where Facebook had just launched its fan pages. So I was on Facebook and I adopted it in college when it was a college exclusive program. And then after that championship game, my junior year, and then certainly after the championship game, my senior year, I was always accepting inbound friend requests because they had lower the age barrier to get in, down to 13 plus. So by the time my senior year came around, I had 10,000 plus friend requests because I was capped out at 5,000 friends. That's actually the impetus of why Facebook created athlete pages. Because some arbitrary person behind the scenes said, no one should have more than 5,000 friends. It's unrealistic anyway. So let's have a cap. But for athletes that may have millions of fans, let's allow them to start a business page or a fan page. So I started an athlete page. They converted all those fans. Out of the gates, I had 15,000-plus fans that I was communicating with. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting because this is now direct communication from a pro-athlete. To a fan base that didn't exist when I was 12, looking for that and searching for that imagination or skill acquisition that we talked about. So something clicked for me shortly thereafter. Instagram launched, Twitter launched, Snapchat, and we can ac- accelerate. But I was always an early adopter. But what that did is got the interest of some sponsors that came to me because they were like this person's marketing himself and part of this new sport. So Nine months into my real estate career, I got an endorsement with Under Armour. I was the number one pick. I was playing well. got an endorsement with a lacrosse company called Maverick. That was enough runway for me to decide to leave real estate and then supplementally start a camping clinic business to offset a low wage, which at the time for rookies was $6,000 for the whole season.
0: Yeah. So I have to think that there were very few players at the time that would have been able to make lacrosse their full-time work?
1: Yeah, there were a few. Kyle Harrison, who was the senior captain my freshman year at Johns Hopkins, he was doing so through his hybrid sponsorship employment agreement with STX. So they brought him on, and he was the face of STX. He was creating hard goods and soft goods with them. But he also had health insurance through the business, and he was helping on the creative side. It was a big value add for that company. But he was also given a ton of autonomy to train as if he was a full-time pro athlete because they needed him to continue to play at the highest level. So that was one example. And then the Gates had done it previously, but they were playing both indoor and outdoor, and there was a lot of stuff that they helped pioneer. The Pals as well. They had taken an attempt at it. But sponsorship... Revenue is critical for non big four sports. And then, even if you look at the big four sports athletes, if you're LeBron James, his sponsorship revenue far exceeds his on court on an annual basis. And so, a part of that is luck, part of it is timing, and then part of it is ingenuity by the athlete and foresight and willing to do a lot of work to try and benefit these brands and be a good partner.
0: Yeah. So, as you're now playing in MLL, and running these camps, what was the evolution of that kernel of a business into where it went Sort of until now? And we'll talk about now.
1: Well, aside from my focus in lacrosse, which was playing in both MLL and NLL. So now all of a sudden I had a $17,000 wage playing NLL. I had that $6,000 wage playing MLL. I had sponsorship income coming from Under Armour and Maverick, and I started a camping clinic business. So that was how I viewed lacrosse and then next to that i had an older brother who was also an entrepreneur and we started building companies together and we were building gyms at the time because he played football at dartmouth i played the cross at hopkins felt like we knew a little bit about fitness and then our third business partner at the time was an analyst at summit partners and they had just acquired the majority stake of snap fitness So, we had an inside route to a franchise business that was pretty lean from an operational standpoint, from a cost structure standpoint. They could operate on its own. And we felt like, hey, this could be something that is in our wheelhouse from an intellectual competency standpoint. We had inside knowledge around how these businesses are successful through the angle of Summit and the acquisition. And let's try to scale these at low touch points. So, I was flinging gym memberships in Joppa, Maryland. I was living in Baltimore. I would train in the morning with my strength and conditioning coach, Jay Dyer. I would drive up to Joppa, sell memberships from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. I would take breaks to post on social media. And then I would come back, reset. And then on weekends, I would teach camps and clinics. I was getting a ton of exposure in business through my brother. And we were building multiple properties. And what happened from that, as I'll speed up, is we self-funded the build-out of these gym codes. They were essentially like... 60k to 120k. You could build them out pretty quickly because they're small and they were targeted in neighborhoods that didn't have a competitor in a two and a half mile radius. And what they were is they were 24 access key card gyms. This was before like Planet Fitness surged and before the 24 hour fitness and all that stuff. And they were neighborhood gyms in that your customer had a key card and they could scan in. There didn't need to be an attendee there. They had this 24 hour security system that kicked back to HQ. So that's why it was really lean and we could operate these things and. You get them up to two hundred and fifty to five hundred members, they spit out cash, and it, it was a cool idea. so that was how that was functioning, and we were learning, but because we had to self fund it, we preferred not to. We wanted to get some debt out from a bank so we could have a better IRR. That turned into the thought of, hey there's a lot of folks that can guarantee leases out here that may be too young to have a strong enough FICO. And all the other reasons of being in 2008 to 2010, we're not getting any debt from a bank. Let's start a small business lending company. I was a passive investor in there. That was more my brother, Mike, and their business partners. But we started Endurance Lending Network. So he shifted his time full-time there. That got acquired by Funding Circle when we were out for our Series A. That turned into Funding Circle US. He moved out to San Francisco. And our paths were on both coasts and that's how I was building. So, that's a little bit more of the background of how I got here. I was always like getting a lot of learning experience in business and building and operating. And then I was taking a lot of that insight into how I was forming the structure around my camps and clinics and managing people that I was bringing onto my payroll. And then the last piece I would say that really helped me understand more sports business and media is I would take out my calendar every year and mark down the major sports conferences. And I would pull on the relationships that I had in the industry to say, hey, can I get into these events? In some cases, I couldn't. I'd book a flight and pay for a ticket to get there. And this is South by Southwest Sports. This is World Congress of Sports. This is Sloan Sports Analytics. This is GSB Sports Innovation. And I would sit and I would listen to executives talk and I would take notes. And I always viewed myself as an athlete that had the opportunity to monetize, to grow, and to build, and potentially do something great
0: in a sport that was really primed to be commercialized. So was there a moment or a day when a light bulb went off and you said, okay, I've been preparing, I'm not sure for what, but now the idea that became the PLL?
1: No, there wasn't a day.
0: (laughs) 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 There were a lot of conversations.
1: I was experiencing equally some small success and some small failures. And because of The accelerated platform I had, which was an audience that was now tipping 700,000 followers in aggregate, if I launched an OTT instructional platform, which I did called the Paul Rabel experience, I could onboard customers much easier than Joe Smith launching a lacrosse instructional OTT. Even if Joe Smith's OTT had a better UI UX, I had greater reach. That's why athletes are now really valuable for early stage startups as small investors that can, if you're the entrepreneur and you carve it out well, get access
0: to their audience. It's like immediate customer acquisition. Yeah. Did you find of the social media platforms, was there a bigger impact on one or the other? or Did you just canvas all of it? Going back to it, I canvassed
1: all of it, but those were different times. These platforms are evolving their algorithms daily. And I would actually say if I were building now and I was a young 20-year-old, I would think about you spray, and then you figure out which platform's best for your skill, the audience, reciprocity, and so on. And then you just go long there. There is overlap, but there's not full overlap. So there is value in being on multiple platforms, but understanding that value. So if you're an athlete right now, I think the biggest platform to be on would be Instagram. If you're a chief investment officer like yourself or an entrepreneur Or an analyst or journalist, Twitter, right? That's where conversation lives live and it's viral and smaller user base, but really compelling content that goes on there. And then if you have the resources and the creative know-how and the ability to go shoot and edit, YouTube can be an incredibly valuable platform and has been for a lot of millennials and Gen Zs who have evolved into these influencers of baked huge audiences. So those are those are how you would, I would think about it now if I wasn't building the PLL right now and just long on media still, I would probably tighten more around whether I'm going to go, for example, video exclusively on Instagram or YouTube. I'm on both right now and I love Twitter. So I'll always be there. But with Instagram rolling out their IGTV and IG stories, I mean, it's no secret. Everyone's competing against each other. So that's what I would say there. Okay, so let's circle back to the founding of PLL. Yeah, so we were having a lot of conversations around, hey, amidst all the growth I've had as a personality in the sport, and that's captured by total followers and so on, endorsement revenue was going up for me. Camps and clinics were selling out. There were other players that were just as big, if not bigger than me, coming through the college system that weren't doing what I was doing and as a result, weren't catching the fire that I caught. So I started spending a lot of time with younger guys and saying like, hey, here's how I would think about it. And a lot of them were just reaching out too. So there was this really hot lamp that was on around players at the time. And that was because of new media, new technology. And then next to that was the emergence of non-Big Four sports because of new streaming platforms, the evolution of media, OTT, on-demand, instant replay, you could even call it, but that was there when when I was growing up. But this is no longer like traditional media back in the first major league baseball days where it was just print radio locally in your ballpark. So you have the emergence of the UFC. You have the emergence of CrossFit, Drone Race League. You have PBR, Street League Skate, X Games. All these properties now have been hitting on the right messages, the right technology, and the right media, and they're growing This is all post 2008. So we just kept thinking like, why not lacrosse? What are we doing wrong here? And I was working really hard as were a number of guys with our teams to try to address that. But as a player, you're just, you're limited. So it was about two years ago, Mike and I got together. And Mike at the time was kind of backwards. He was running revenue at Funding Circle. And then he had, uh, like a lot of executives in Silicon Valley, had a really strong about seven year run and said, OK, I'm now re-energized again to go back and build from scratch. So he was going to begin a search fund and he had some overhead capital to support him and go do an LBO of a five to ten million dollar business. And Mike was like, hey, what are you doing, Paul? Your time, you're 31 <laughs> and you're picking up a lot of a lot of skills. So why don't you come out to Silicon Valley with me and let's go do this search fund? I was like, let's talk about lacrosse. So we said, okay, and and we rolled our sleeves up for a few months, and as part of that sleeve roll, we were meeting with MLL, and we were trying to understand where they were, because at the time, they had just announced the step down of their commissioner. And so Mike and I were going and saying like, hey, what's management look like? Is that something that you'd be interested in us looking at or taking a, a swing at? That didn't take place, but the more we were digging in, the more we looked at those other league examples and me as an athlete and other athletes, there's something here. So about six months later, we went back to MLL with overhead capital that we had acquired at the time was primarily private equity. And we proposed a number of different scenarios of essentially buying them or rolling them up and keeping them involved from an equity standpoint. But essentially, like, here's why, like any entrepreneur would, and there's a level of confidence that you have to have, but there's a lot of humility to say, like, here's why we think we're best fit to operate this thing. Here are some of our ideas. What do you think? And so we spent a lot of time talking about it. Couldn't come to a a solution, but through that time, we had just so much conviction around where we think pro lacrosse could be. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but our league is a tour-based model. So the model is completely different than a traditional team sports league. And so had we agreed to some form of M&A, we were going to roll up and roll out tour even with
0: MLL had that taken place. So let's go right there. That crux, the difference between team-based – and a touring model. We had the benefit of
1: starting a major team sports league from scratch in 2018. What would that look like? And mention Major League Baseball because you look at consumer trends, you look at, that's across the board from the way that they consume sports but also their behavior in market, externally and so on. And then you look at available resources so, Major League Baseball was founded at the time of linear media being local newspaper, local radio. As television evolved into local and then national, an instant replay on demand OTT, that whole 50 to 70 year span saw sports consumption change drastically. So while people used to grow up in the same market where they lived the rest of their lives and go to the local ballpark, and they had that geographical affinity because teams and leagues were far bigger than athletes, you fast forward to where athletes are now with social media, and there's plenty of data that's been aggregated across Google, Facebook, and now the SFIA and so on, that athletes following are four, sometimes eight to one the size of their teams and league. And because of that instantaneous access that a fan can have to watch Cristiano Ronaldo's live games overseas, or if they're on the East Coast, favor LeBron James and the Lakers or Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors because they watch all their games and then follow them and communicate with them on social, that the connection has changed and leverage has changed. And that's why I was talking about this yesterday. We're seeing free agency the way it is in basketball. Leverage has changed. The athletes have the leverage. The teams don't anymore. And that's even circulating in the NFL, which is the biggest anomaly. And very few leagues, if any, should try to compare themselves to how the NFL sets trends. So we were looking at that as, as a case study. And then we were looking at operational optimization. So if you're a non-Big Four sport, traditionally you go out and you try to find owners and you franchise it. And, and oftentimes those owners don't own venues, most times. If you don't own a venue in a city-based model, You have to then become a tenant on a lease. And a lot of times you're deprioritized. And then you have to every year try to create your schedule. Even the MLS has challenges with schedules and they own their venues. So if you don't own a venue and you're saying, okay, we need eight home games from June through August. Give us the options. They give you the options. And then you go cross compare with all the other teams and then you scrap everything you do. What you end up with is very few optimal times to host games. Moreover, When you're a tenant on a lease, very few non big four sports are playing in NFL venues or MLS venues because they're just really expensive. So we looked at that saying, ah, that just doesn't feel right. Individual sports seem like they get it right with the tour based model. Additionally, in a tour based model like NASCAR, you have all the best racers in the world descending upon a major market city or a major venue, and they're racing over the course of the weekend. So there's this, fan festival component, you're bringing corporate partners to life. You're actually optimizing the spend on production because you're not sending production trucks all over the country to capture multiple races over the course of the weekend. There's only one group there capturing the race. And so there's that moment. But what we looked at too, if we were go tour base and all of our teams come in the same market, we rent out a venue for the weekend. The most important thing that's second to having the best players in the world in any sports league is you have distribution. Sports are consumed through media. Less than 5% of sports fans actually go to games. You're consuming it through your mobile device, your tablet, your television, circle of conversation. So if you don't have distribution, you might as well just chalk it up as a loss. And so if you're going back to that lease structuring, if you then have limited times that are deprioritized then you go to your network and you say, here's when we're playing games and they don't have open programming windows, which by the way, oftentimes get booked two years in advance. You ain't getting a network, even if they're interested. Rather, if you go on a tour based model and say, Hey, what are your open windows on Saturday and Sunday? And they go, we have a four o'clock this time and eight o'clock on Sunday. We go done and done because we control that whole weekend. So that tour-based model solved for distribution out of the gates and distribution is table stakes in sports leagues. So that was where we are. Then if you look at the last factor that I'll share with you is if you're a non-Big Four sports league, typically you look at all these leagues, whether it's National Women's Soccer League, the WNBA has gotten a a big injection of growth from the NBA owners doing the right thing, which is owning the WNBA teams. And Josiah and his group just purchased the New York Liberty But if you look at water polo or rugby or lacrosse, you're in fewer than typically 12 markets. You have 10 or less teams. And for us, we said, okay, a sport that's growing east to west, it's the fastest growing team sport in North America at the youth level over the last 15 years. It just got Olympic recognition at the international level. So bookending international to youth, IOC gave its recognition to participate as an Olympic sport. There are two more steps, but that recognition is really difficult to get. That came last November. There are 60 countries that are nationally sanctioned playing lacrosse right now. It's the fastest growing team sport in the NCAA level, both men's and women's. This is the oldest sport in North America. We were like, this thing has product market fit. All right. But if we're launching a league, and in our case, we have six teams, if we tie each of the six teams to a city, we're actually very, very local and we're exclusive And by going tour-based and not attaching a city to the front of the jersey, yes, it's more challenging and it's more abstract based on how consumers are used to consuming team sports leagues. But when we go to our 13 markets all over the country over 14 weekends, and we'll go to one twice, and that's in New York, we all of a sudden are a national sport. And fans all over the country can choose their allegiance based going back to our point of favorite player, favorite player and coach combo, favorite team combo, or even the culture that we build around the teams. So there's a lot, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I've Let's, been talking I for walk, 10 minutes.
0: Walk through some of this because yeah, this is sure. awesome. When you get started, so you're going to have to rent out big stadiums. You got to figure out that distribution. Do you start with funding and a concept? Do you start by trying to get distribution locked up? How did you put those pieces of the puzzle together?
1: So we started with a seed round, just like any founder or co-founder group. You've got to put in a lot of work leading into any round of financing. Scott Galloway says you've got to be willing to sign the front of a check, not the back. And it gets even more dynamic than that because very few people in the U.S. will work for free. Now imagine working for free 80 hours a week and then writing a check to the company that you're working for. <laughs> like it's fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. But you have to build your investment thesis. You have to create an OM. You've got to have the right conversations with the players and the networks up to that point. In the stadium, you've got to have all the case studies and the comps and you got to put forth the effort. So we did that first, and then we took the investment opportunity to some venture capital because the time to acquire MLL had gone. So you shift quickly from private equity to venture because this was certainly a venture investment. So we raised a small seed round, and the goal of that was to allow us to anchor a network deal, secure venues, get first leads in on sponsors, sign up players, hire an executive team. So small in the, in the scheme of sports, it was a healthy seed round, but so we had about a six month period to go execute. Reflecting on this, Mike and I, you have to be confident and passionate about your concept, but we had an opportunity at one point to just raise a ton of money in one round. It was tricky around valuation and this is a pre-revenue bet and it's sports and sports have major valuations because of fan attention and viewership, sponsorship, future revenue. So we decided to parse it out, thought it was healthy to do that with our investors. But we did all of that ramp up in that six month and then had our series A done. Because it was basically like, can these two guys go out and do this? And it was daunting. We were certain we were going to get a network deal because we had all the interest from CBS, NBC, Fox, Turner, ABC, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter. And so then it came down to, because of our tour-based model, there was that interest in what we were building and then the excitement around lacrosse. And then the other macro trend is that the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL rights are up in 2021, 2022. So brands are trying to position themselves. You saw the WWE deal get jacked up because these niche audiences are continuing to grow and they're very sticky. UFC rights went up. So lacrosse can, can be a big one if done right. So there was interest. It goes to timing. Timing. We were to secure an NBC deal. They were the best partners that offered the best deal at the time. That was John Miller, who's president of programming. Pete Bovacqua is president of NBC Sports Group. And Mr. Lazarus, who's in the room now, who's running NBC. So we're talking at a major partner level. And we're really excited about it because we have 19 games on television. Three of them on NBC, main network, 16 on NBC Sports that jumped ESPN2 last year in total viewership. This is on par with, while we have fewer games in the NHL, I mean, this is a a gameplay to broadcast schedule on par with some of the biggest sports leagues in the world. So 19 on television, 19 on NBCSports.com and NBC Gold makes it a hell of a lot easier to launch a product when you have a network partner.
0: You get the network partner, to imagine you now have got the facilities. Did you figure out where you were going to play the weekends?
1: Yep. So what we had was a pool of probably 30 cities that were interested that had availability. So certainly wanted to target premium venues that have fiber technology connectivity to make the broadcast not only easier and functional, but we want to elevate the broadcast for this game. It's not going to be a three to four camera broadcast. It's going to be a seven to 10. And that's huge for lacrosse, which is a big field and a small ball that moves really fast. It's tough to track. So we were doing it all simultaneously. I mean, we were, we're doing and still are. It's like everything from <laughs> VIP wristbands on site. We have a group we're working with called Prize that does the do Tour and all the Red Bull Signature Series and stuff for event activation partners. Like our main thing is player competition, distribution, corporate partners. And so like that's all insourced, our BD team and merchandise as well. And then we have a lot of outsource strategy. But Yeah, it's a major
0: lift. I want to go through some of the subtleties in how you actually then form the league and the team. So it first starts with, how do you pick the players? What we looked at was, all right, with our players, and this
1: is why it was really attractive and having been there, and we talked about the $6,000 wage in 2008, is it's just not enough to be a sport that produces the top quality competition on the field. You need your players to be full-time. Or about as full-time as possible. And I say the last part of it because our players are still, because of habit, a lot of them have jobs or are coaching. So there's going to be probably a three-year transition. We're not saying, hey, leave your job on Wall Street tomorrow and come take this wage that we elevated from what MLL formerly distributed. But there's certainly a demand around attention during film and practice time scheduling and all that stuff. So we elevated the wages. We also solved for a challenge that I had experienced in some of my peers that were full-time lacrosse players and that we were sourcing our own healthcare. It's a challenging time, no matter who you are in the U.S. So we said, okay, true single entity league, we can open up healthcare to our players. And so they can opt in. And then the last one, which is, I think the most transcending is We viewed ourselves as an early-stage Silicon Valley startup, venture-backed from folks like Josai and and Josai Sports, Rain Ventures, CAA, Chernin, Blum. We have an individual who's one of the most successful hedge fund operators in Brett Jefferson. This is a group of investors and then advisors that expect and are working with us to build on that same trajectory. And what you have in Silicon Valley is a treatment of your employees where they get stock options of the business and that's carved out in your employee cap table so we carved out a portion of that for our players And so our players have options in the business and going along with where we're seeing trends in sports as players become by far and away the most valuable asset in a league is how do we all row in the same direction so as they're building value for themselves they're also generating enterprise value for the business and they're receiving a return on that as we continue to grow this thing this is how we did it now to your question around Picking players with that environment, the last thing we wanted to do was make this exclusive. So we had conversations with who we deemed the top players at the time, which was based off of tenure in pro lacrosse, USA team, Canada team, all-star nods, MVPs. So we built a list of about 50 guys that we had first level conversations with. And frankly, the first ones that we had, we weren't sure if they were just going to say flat out no, because a lot of athletes, if they're like me, they grew up watching Michael Jordan and now Tom Brady, and they see that kind of city-based model. This is asking someone to think creatively and try to align with our vision. Like 10 out of 10, everyone's like, love this. And then from there, we built our player relations team is led by Kyle Harrison. And then Tom Schreiber was kicking in. And when you have Kyle Harrison, who I had mentioned earlier, and Tom Schreiber, who's the reigning MVP, like having conversations with players is pretty good. So we created a structure around, okay, we have six teams. 22 active roster players per team, 28 total per team. So there's six inactive roster players, and we're going to have a player pool. We came up with that number, and the player pool is whoever wants to kind of opt in and be accessible to coaches who are essentially driving the competition on field. That was based off of data too. So over the last five years in pro lacrosse, any given team typically dresses upwards of 33 players on then a 19-man roster so that accounts for trades injuries inbound college players like me back in 2008 and then even inbound nll players which is the indoor league because of that scheduling overlap so the latter two won't be as maybe as abundant as the last five years because we adjusted the schedule which is another benefit i didn't mention in the tour based model we could say okay now we want to start in june when college is done but nevertheless we came up with that pool of essentially 160 to 180 guys that will be playing at some point based on data.
0: How do you form the teams? There's no draft, there's no individual owners. Like how do you put that together?
1: Yeah, myself and my brother Mike are co-founders of this business. I'm our chief strategy officer, Mike's our CEO. So I work across essentially media and corporate partners. And then I chip in around rules and innovation and product on field from time to time. But it was critical for us that we bifurcated our org and built out a lacrosse unit that could focus on competitive integrity, management of coaches, operation of weekends, management of players. So our player relations team tucks under our lacrosse org. And so we brought on Josh Sims, who's our head of lacrosse. He's about a 15-year professional in sports product management and technology, he was a three-time first-team All-American at Princeton, one of the best players that the game has had over the last few decades, and he was constantly watching us and pinging us around, hey, this is really interesting what you guys are doing, and I've been distant from the game since I retired playing pro lacrosse, would love to like, entertain coming back. So we, through a course of interviews and so on, brought him on as our head of lacrosse. So he oversees all of what I had mentioned and is also currently building out his team of operational managers and so on. So he helped hire our head coaches, which are all world-class, kind of led by Dom Starja, who's arguably one of the best lacrosse coaches in the game's history. And then when we talked about forming our teams, it was a combination of getting feedback from our players who are option holders in the business, and then also how we can attention hack or gather the right response from the market that could get a nascent stage league off the ground faster, You know, starting lane three or four versus one or eight. The feedback from the players, in hindsight, was fairly obvious, which was we don't want a draft. No players want drafts unless you're drafted first. You're not, (laughs) you know, first. (laughs) So so that was cool to hear. And we were originally saying, I mean, we talked about everything, Ted. We talked about a traditional draft. We talked about creating a draft that was based off of fantasy auction, UGC draft from fans and so on. But what we kept coming back to was – gold standard in the sport going back to my experience college lacrosse and then we look at the player pool that we have now and how there's 23 guys that played for Maryland there's over a dozen that played for Duke and there is this organic competitive alignment and chemistry that's already there and when you talk about best sports in the world you look at teams that have that chemistry and that competitive fire that sometimes has been built over a decade between the coach creating culture there like a Greg Popovich, or other times three to four years with the player duo that continue to build that chemistry in the locker room and on court. So it was clear to us that we had an opportunity to not only have best product on field through that baked in chemistry, but also aggregate a fan base that loves college sports and college lacrosse specifically. So one of our levers that we looked at in building these teams was college alignment between our current player pool. The second was, if you look at guys like myself and Kyle Harrison and Joe Walters who've been playing pro over a decade, is that even more impactfully than college, we've played with certain guys for 10 years versus four. So we looked at former pro team chemistry. And then we pulled out the data around skill and age, and we did a weighted, basically a weighted scorecard. So Josh led that. Adjacent to Josh, we had built a lacrosse advisory board because we wanted to be as objective as possible. So that consists of folks like Dave Petromala and John Donowski. It's chaired by Seth Tierney. Has Jen Levy on the board. Has someone like Paul Carchaterra on the board on, on the uh, announcement side and analyst side of lacrosse. And Jen Levy is one of the top coaches in the women's game, both with the Team USA and North Carolina. And so we worked with them to say, okay, what do you think? Basically, does this pass the sniff test? They came back and gave feedback around certain players here and there. And that's how we formed our teams.
0: And what do you do over time if, if there are just imbalances? Will there be trades? Do guys retire from the league? Have you thought about that as a multi-year period goes on?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So in addition
1: to forming these teams, which by the way, there's six of them, and we have the best players in the world. So the competitive parity is just absurd, right? I mean, if you look at, I would be willing to wager a lot that no one's going undefeated. But yes, from the moment we formed teams, which was two weeks ago from the time we're filming this, is then they're in the hands of the coaches. So we haven't unveiled publicly how trades look. We announced that we're doing a college draft. We haven't unveiled the order of the draft yet. But yes, just like any team sports league, we only have this moment once in our life cycle. And from there on out, these teams will take their own shape based on how the coaches interact with the players and adjust through trades or college drafts or dealing with injury or retirement in subsequent years.
0: They're going to be building to win. And this team dynamic is kind of interesting in a tour-based model. I'm imagining that the players live all over the place. How do you form and build the chemistry of a team? And some of it, you mentioned that it, it may already exist with some of the players when it's not like uh, Bill Belichick's football team were starting on Monday morning, they're getting ready to practice for the Sunday game.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. So the first thing is that the cadence of practicing is pretty close to mirroring how pro lacrosse has existed, And that there's a couple of practices, maybe three, depending if you're a Sunday game, a week that these guys get, and it's jammed inside of a 72-hour window. But that's how these guys are, are used to it. And frankly, like if you zoom out, and you mentioned Bill Belichick, who's a friend of mine, and I've gotten to know him for the last decade and a half because he grew up playing lacrosse in the Maryland area like me. Football, they don't actually practice during the week, during the season. They ain't suiting up. They'll go through skeleton offense and defense, but it's a lot of film work. It's a lot of rehab, strength and conditioning conversations and all that in-person experience is very valuable, but understanding where we are at this stage and we'll get there in a future stage, but add the technology and tools that are available. So there's a lot of software services that allow coaches to host video conferences with players every night during the week. They can send out scouting reviews. They can send out tape to players. They can monitor viewership from players that type of scouting and video prep and work, that gets done remotely. That's easy. And then it's our job as the league, different than what pro lacrosse players have been afforded formally, to make sure that our players have the right resources when they are in their home markets to train, to have access to PT. And we do that through our medical partners, through our strength and
0: conditioning partners, and so on. Among the other media venues you've touched on, the one we didn't mention was your podcast, Suiting Up. Why don't you just talk a little bit about the last couple of years of that and what it is and sure. what you learn from
1: it. If your audience doesn't know by now, if they're still tuning in, they, they know that I talk a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> this medium is great for someone like myself that likes to air it out with someone else. But I grew up with learning differences. I had auditory processing challenges. I had ADHD I was an early adopter of a program that was called Kurzweil. It's still in schools now, but it's essentially you scan your reading material or now you can just upload it online and it can read it back to you and you can click and highlight. I'm a very visual and audible learner. And so I was always attracted to podcasts. And a few years ago, I found myself, and it's part personality type, just so obsessed with the medium and the way that I could satisfy a lot of intellectual curiosity and learn. I mentioned going to those sports conferences through my first decade as a young professional. Essentially, was getting that information on a daily basis, depending on who I was subscribing to and listening to through this forum. And my friend at the time, who I was working closely with on a few projects, who's now our manager of content and a savant when it comes to digital, social, and widely technology, his name's Tyler Steinhardt he was tapping on my shoulder and knew my relationship with someone like Bill Belichick and Venus Williams and Steve Nash and other folks. He was like, hey, you love podcasts. We're always talking about it and sharing podcasts. Why don't you start your own and share some of those conversations you have with those guys like uh, Jeremy Lin and stuff like that. And I thought about it because at the time I was getting approached by a lot of networks to do a lacrosse specific show. I was doing enough lacrosse stuff. And I just enjoy sitting down with people like you and talking. So that was like the impetus of launching the show. But as you know, it's a ton of work. My podcast is called Suiting Up with Paul Rabel. We've done uh, 70 plus shows. I was doing it on a weekly basis for the first year and a half. And then we started building the P.O.L. <laughs> and, uh, and you have exciting. to prioritize. Yeah, <laughs> it ties back to your other question. Like, how do you think about social? So podcasting is a form of a social network now. And I think there's properties right now that are trying to synthesize the tools in tech like a Spotify and Apple Pod and those are evolving. And so I've decided to relaunch the show on a season-based strategy. So 12 episodes will be starting in June and I've already begun recording with some guests.
0: And what are the most important lessons you learned from the interviews you did on your podcast?
1: There are fantastic lessons from each of these conversations. And whether that's, again, with the folks that I mentioned or Tony Robbins or Scott Galloway, who's the professor of business and marketing at NYU Stern, nine-time entrepreneur, two-time New York Times bestselling author, Ryan Holiday, they give you tactics when you sit down with them. But at a really high level, and we all hear this, but it's great speakers can frame things really well and they resonate as a result. But to create something meaningful, that has an impact and a legacy, there's literally no way around the work that's required to create. And it's time consuming. It requires an insane level of endurance and speed, partially talent, but mostly endurance. And we often romanticize successful entrepreneurs or athletes or entertainers. But behind the scenes, there's just full immersion and real sacrifice. And so it's motivating for me, and it also gives me a concrete episode to go back to on a random basis, because they all talk about it when times are lonely or dark
0: or struggling and building this thing. It's like everyone goes through it. That's great. You mentioned your learning differences. And it's one thing to have gone through it and battled and figured out how you learn but you also created a foundation focused on it. So I want you to touch a little bit about the Rabel Foundation.
1: Yeah. So we started that in 2011. I was 25 at the time and uh, was just catching momentum from social media as we had talked. And I had come off my first MVP year in pro lacrosse. And I felt like because of, and I'll say I'm really fortunate to have parents that constantly instilled humility and gratitude that I was at a point where I could impact and it probably came a lot from the interactions that I had in abundance through the camping clinic side of things with youth America, that there was an opportunity for me to reflect on how I was able to get to this position. And that was mainly through support and what I could do now with the opportunity and the kind of platform that I had to try and contribute. And so I sat down with my folks and few other mentors and we decided to launch the Paul Rabel Foundation and the goal was to at first provide lacrosse equipment and educate coaches to schools that didn't have access to this sport that were focused primarily on educating children with learning differences. And there's a much larger conversation going on in the US and particularly around public schools that have LD departments. But outside of a handful of states, most actually don't recognize specific learning differences. And as a result, because of that governed recognition, all kids with different, whether it's autism to dyslexia to ADHD to auditory processing disorder, they're all put in the same classroom. It's not a conducive learning environment. And so there's challenges. And that's why private school education for children with learning differences is really helpful, but it's expensive. And just like any private school, they try to allocate the resources to their teachers and they don't have much extracurricular. So we sat down and said, lacrosse was a huge confidence booster for me who struggled with confidence in the classroom. Let me try to start there. And then the more we dug in and the gratitude that came from our school partners, the more we said, okay, let's use this platform to raise money and start a scholarship fund too. So we gave Marco Grant scholarships to families and kids in need of that financial aid to go to those specialty programs. That's great.
0: I got to ask right now, when
1: is the first Weekend. Yeah, yeah, great. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. June first is when we play our first game. That's at Gillette Stadium. So right now we're not we've been announcing our venues over the last month and a half on a chronological order. So we're starting at Gillette. So that's June first and second. Two games on Saturday, one on Sunday, they'll be on NBC. The second week is going to be at Red Bull Arena in New York. The third week is going to be at the new Seat Geek venue, which is formerly Toyota Park in Chicago. It's the MLS venue there. The fourth weekend we announced is going to be at actually John Topkins Homewood Field. So it's one of our two college venues. And then the fifth weekend we just announced yesterday is at Georgia State, which is former Turner Field in Atlanta, Georgia. So right now we've been getting a lot of conversation around tour base and approaching new markets. And we're in a lot of East Coast markets per our announcement. And we'll explain more when we finalize the announcements of our schedule in its entirety but no different than NASCAR or the WWE, you gotta synthesize the process through business ops. So it doesn't make sense for us as a company to be in New York week one, to be in California week two, to be in Philadelphia week three, to be in the Pacific Northwest in week <laughs> four. Across yeah. the country, yeah. 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 I mean, this is a big operation, right? We have fifty-five foot trailers that are going from one market to the next. But these are also venues that are working with us very closely and committing resources and and support through everything from security and vending and parking to actual marketing to sales. So this is a very collaborative experience on a week-to-week basis. And I will give a quick shout out to our, our SVP of strategic operations, Andrew Sinnenberg. He was an early employee at Spartan Race and then went to Wharton School of Business, helped scale Berries. He's one of the sharpest people I've ever been around and does the work output of probably three people on a daily basis, but he leads those ops and he was Mike and my second employee. The first was Kyle Harrison. So he's been in the trenches with us for a long time and
0: knows a tour-based product very well. All right, Paul, I know you got to run, but we have to have some time for this closing question. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It changes. It changes
1: part of my like obsessive compulsive
0: personality.
1: But my mom's an art teacher. My dad was a paper salesman. Now our dad works for the PLL and he helps lead our uh, youth efforts through PLL Academy. Going back to my mom, I took her art classes growing up and I love the arts and I had an art scholarship in high school and I've gotten back into art. So I'm painting a lot, acrylic painting.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Well, I'll say this. It might be crude for the podcast, but as an athlete, you're always kind of like back and forth in the locker room. And I really dislike when there is a teammate who goes to the bathroom, leaves the seat down and pees all over the toilet. (laughs) Because you have all this adrenaline rushing, right? And you're like hydrating during the day because you have a big 60 minute match. And so I'll sometimes I put a sign up (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why it's like the case. I would probably going back to that OCD around cleanliness, but... <laughs> so this is an interesting one for you. What's your favorite thing to read? I've become very fond of what's categorized, and I'm not sure this should be the case. I think it should change in a Barnes & Noble or bookstore self-help books. I refer to them as self-growth, is I love reading about the human psychology it's beneficial to me personally, to people that I work with professionally, to investors that we interact with, and to my ability to lead on the field or interact with teammates. So the first real self-growth book I read was Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. That's caught fire over the last few years. But Harriet Lerner, Esther Perel, those are all uh, great authors of books that I like to read.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: They've taught me a lot. I would probably say always saying thank you and understanding that there are patterns that have developed and opportunities that have opened up that I'm getting access to because of my brother or my younger sister or my mom and dad or people within our network or outside of our network. So being very aware of that. And then work ethic. But the one that they continue to harp on now is it's kind of relax and smile and enjoy the moment as I think they feel probably pretty good about what Mike and I are doing from an effort and comprehension standpoint. So just want to make sure we're not getting too carried away.
0: All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Empathy, I would say. I think it's probably the most powerful skill
1: that any person can have no matter what you do. And I wish I had it, it's hypothetical, in that it requires experience and failure to really learn and maturity. So I would love to have had it when I was younger, unrealistic, but what I have now and what I'm trying to continue to improve and strengthen is my ability to empathize. It helps you as an executive, it helps you as a player, it helps you as a friend and a son and a partner, And I think a way that I at least share with folks on my podcasts and when I have some of these conversations that empathy often gets framed in the way of something that's negative or sad or challenging. It's like, how can you empathize with this person? And the next question is, well, if you've never experienced that moment, it's difficult to be in that person's shoes. And so that's like empathy at its best is if someone can be in the moment with someone else who's suffering but what you can do to work on that skill is actually in the inverse and i call it positive empathy. empathy isn't just around something that's challenging. and i'll give you an example in sports. if you have a teammate who makes a game winning goal and we're all competitors and we'd all love to have the game winning goal. if you find yourself reactively kind of shunning or saying hey ah i'm pumped cuz we won but i would love to have i missed that last shot. it's not the right mindset celebrate others victories too. celebrate others wins if someone in your workplace gets promoted try to really be with them and be excited positive empathy is a lot easier but if you're not good at that you're definitely not going to be good at consoling in times of
0: struggle paul this has been awesome wishing you the best of luck we'll be watching and uh, thanks so much for taking the time thanks for having me i really appreciate it